Welcome to a Nuclear for Australia live stream. Today we are joined by Stuart Bridges. This is a Nuclear for Australia Q&A, hosted by Will Shackle. During this Q&A, you'll have the opportunity to ask questions about nuclear energy. As a reminder to ask a question, please write it in the comments on the platform you're viewing this live stream on. Also, please make sure to sign our new petition to legalise nuclear energy um, because we're shutting down our change rule petition at nuclearforaustralia.com slash petition. Now, with that, thank you very much, Stuart, for joining us. First of all, do you mind if you introduce yourself? And I'll unmute you. Yeah, hi, Will. Um, you can hear me okay? I can. Uh, yeah, so uh, thanks for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure to talk with you and finally get a chance to chat with you this morning. Um, we've had been messaging each other for a while. Um, uh, I'll give you a little bit of background uh, in terms of my sort of nuclear focus part of my career. Um, I was uh, I did mechanical engineering at uni, but I quickly moved on to um, uh, business and management after that, and uh, eventually um, uh, my trade is a manage as ma as a management consultant really, and I went into engineering consultancy um, about fifteen years ago. Uh, with a company called Atkins in the UK, who's now SNC Lavalin, uh, is the uh, is the group owner of, of that company now, um, and I worked for them for 14 years uh, up till recently um, as an engineering consultant, and predominantly in the energy sector. Uh, I started working uh, for uh, the companies that operate the UK nuclear fleet about 12, 13 years ago. And I did quite a few years working with them on various um, management and, and more technical projects, combination of the two, um, as a consultant lead. And from there, I got involved in the nuclear new build program that EDF put together, who had then become the operator of the UK nuclear fleet with plans to build new nuclear uh, plants in the UK, which they are now doing. Um, and I spent two or three years in the early development of the nuclear new build program uh, that is, has now become the Hinkley Point and the Sizewell C um, programs. Uh, off the back of that, I was asked if I would consider coming to work on the Baraka program in the UAE. Uh, they were just starting construction of a four unit nuclear power plant in the Western region here in the UAE. Uh, so, I came out here and I worked on that program for six years. Um, I had uh, three or four different roles while I was there for six years, but the, the last one's probably most interesting, which was uh, I spent about three years working for the um, uh, for, well, for the deputy CEO at the time, uh, who uh, had an oversight role on the construction program. So I helped to set up and run a, a program assurance team, if you like, who watch the vendor, the constructor, get to completion, basically. So I did that. Uh, and then in COVID, I went back to the UK, uh, went back to act working in the UK for Atkins, uh, 
quite briefly worked on Hinkley Point C again as the construction project. Um, and then more recently, uh, I was invited to come back to the UAE to work for the Department of Energy uh, in more of an advisory role, um, particularly with uh, a focus on uh, energy transition, uh, DOE having a, a very rapidly changing role from just monitoring, you know, thermal plant um, uh, uh, and, and transitioning into renewables and, and uh, nuclear oversight. So managing all of that against the backdrop of, of being the next host of COP28 as well. Um, so uh, I, I took the offer and came back. So I've been working in that advisory capacity uh, in DOE in, in, in Abu Dhabi uh, for the last uh, just over a year, 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 two years. So clearly you've got a lot of experience working in the new, working in and around the nuclear industry. Just yep. we start off almost chronologically and what, what was your experience with Hinkley Point C? Obviously there's been well, there's some public discussion around that with some cost blowouts, et cetera, but when you're working yep. in the licensing and planning process, what was the initial vision of Hinkley Point C? Um, I think you have, to, you have to start answering that question by looking at the UK's uh, fleet context. So the UK had originally a large fleet of what they called Magnox reactors. And as they were uh, becoming more aged, they, they started a, a new design of AGR uh, reactors and they'd been in operation for 20, 30 years. And there was a growing recognition in the UK that that fleet is going to be coming offline, um, you know, after the turn of the century. So there needed to be plans of how, what do you replace those with? Um, and around that time, uh, the fleet was operated by a company called British Energy, which was then bought out by EDF Energy. So EDF Energy, as you know, it's a French state-owned uh, utility operator. Um, they set up a UK company. So there is a UK EDF um, and they operate the existing fleet. There, when I started working there, there I think there were, I, my numbers might be a little bit inaccurate, but there, I think there was about 15 operational nuclear plants at that time in the UK. And I think they've, of that AGR fleet, I think they've only got four now running. It might be six, actually. But it's a fragment of what they used to have. And they've all come offline because they've just got to the end of their useful life. And they've, I think all of the plant have gone through some form of uh, lifetime extension program, some of them very successfully. Uh, they've got a graphite core, which is quite fragile and makes, uh, you know, prolonged use beyond its design life quite difficult. Um, I'm not an expert, but it, it makes extending their life exponentially very difficult. So we've got probably in the UK, uh, a, uh, you know, a backdrop of uh, uh, under capacity in terms of power generation, particularly clean power generation. And that's the context really to why there was a lot of discussions between EDF and the government to ensure that they secure a plan to build nuclear new builds. And the EPR is about as large as they can get. Um, I think it's the largest plant design that's available. And so they've currently got plans to build Hinkley, which is two units, uh, which is three gigawatts. 
and then another twin unit plant at Sizewell, which is on the other side of the country, uh, which will be another three gigawatts. So combined, there'll be six gigawatts. Yeah. So do you, so from your experience, is nuclear energy going to be a major part of the UK's transition to clean energy? And why why do you think that they've chosen? If so, why do you think they've chosen to go down that route rather than ditch? nuclear as many countries such as Germany have done and mm. opting for renewable technology? I think that this is a really key point for me, Will, because you see a lot, don't you, in the, in the media about nuclear versus renewables or X versus Y. Um, for me, it's a non-argument. Um, you know, if you look at the scale of the undertaking to get through energy transition and, and, and to get to something that more resembles net zero. We need, you know, to quote the movie, you need everything everywhere all at once. Um, so for me, arguing about the pros and cons of which is better is irrelevant. We, we sort of need everything. Um, to put that in context, in the UK, for example, um, the government, the government's policy says they want 24, 25 gigawatts of, of nuclear power. Um, for 2050. Um, that in itself is a huge undertaking. And my personal belief is that's not enough because that represents about a quarter of the UK's installed capacity requirements. Is a quarter of nuclear in the energy mix for net zero enough? I doubt it. But to get to 24 gigawatts, even if you use large scale nuclear plant, you're talking about 24 new units. And, you know, the only people who have been able to build on that scale at, at the moment is China. Um, and they've got plans to build. I think they've got, they've currently got 20 being planned to be built. I can't remember how many they've got exactly in construction right now, but it's a, it's a lot. It's more than anyone else. So in terms of renewables versus nuclear, as I say, it's a question of needing it all. Um, you need both. Um, and the UK's got some of the highest penetration of wind plant um, as part of its energy mix. On a good day, it can generate, I think, 60% of their power. But on a bad day, of course, it generates a fragment of that, a fraction of that. Mm. So, you know, I'm sure we'll get on to uh, renewables and intermittency as part of the discussion, but that presents huge issues for grid operators. Um, and one of the clear advantages for me in terms of nuclear versus alternatives is it's just easy to connect. We've been doing it for years, for decades. Um, you don't need to reinvent the distribution network. You don't need to reinvent the way you transmit the power um, or connect it to the grid. You can, most in most cases, there's a site that you can build right next to and put a new plant next to an old one. If you can get your stakeholders aligned to that way of thinking, which is... Yeah. Why, why do you think that recently there's been a bit of a hold-up with nuclear energy developments, particularly in Western nations? Why is it so difficult and sometimes so expensive for Western nations to build nuclear reactors compared to, you know, countries such yeah. as China, even, you know, UAE, I know we'll probably discuss that later, but... From your position, 
what what is the issue and what do you think could be done to try and address it? Um, as with all these questions, there's no single answer um, yeah. and nothing's black and white. If I was to give you a few themes of why it's difficult, obviously finance, you know, and the financing capital costs of construction are a burden. Let's be frank. Um, to be able to commit, you know, let's say if it's if you say it's eight to ten billion dollars for a, a large nuclear plant per unit, someone's got to make that money available, and it takes five, six, seven, eight, perhaps even longer if you don't do it very well to construct before you start to get any payback. So there's a there's a financing issue. Um, there's there's the overnight cost of borrowing that money if you have to borrow it. Um, that's number one. Number two, I think the nuclear industry has been very poor at decoupling itself from nuclear defense and nuclear for war purposes. Um, and I think that um, it just perpetuates this fear of what nuclear power means in terms of the public. Um, so I think that's still a factor. And if the if the nuclear industry wants to to um, be the thing that it would like to be, if you're involved and you'll know what I'm talking about, um, mm. they need to reinvent themselves um, to some degree. And they need to market themselves like any other industry would in terms of the advantages of, of doing what we need to do. So I think there's that aspect, there's that perceptions aspect makes it difficult. And, and that links to the sort of political difficulties, if you see what I mean, because politicians want votes and votes mean public and public means what makes them happy and comfortable. And, and you know, if, if people don't understand what nuclear power means, they just hear the word nuclear and think of, of bad things and accidents and bombs and don't like it. So we need to, we need to address that. And, and, and that then helps with the political will um, and making sure that governments can make long-term plans. And that sort of brings me on to my next point really, which is, and I think it addresses your specific point, which is why does the West find it hard? Um, Western countries, I feel like the political cycle of re-election makes it difficult to get major projects to run well or even get them started in the first place. Um, if I think back to the UK, for example, I mean, we are lucky in the way that we've managed to get Hinky C committed and started and, and, it's, and it's, it's about halfway through construction now. Um, Sizewell C has, has been committed by the government, but they haven't there's committed and there's committed. I don't see the evidence that they're actually in a position to start digging holes and, and uh, pouring concrete. Um, while all of that was in the planning process, I don't know if you're aware, Will, but um, there were several other nuclear um, organizations going through the planning and licensing phase. There was a company mm. called Horizon and there was another one called NewGen. And they were both planning to build large nuclear plants in the UK um, and they weren't able to 
Um, they weren't able to get through that licensing process before right. their shareholders ran out of patience with the funding. Um, so you, you need to have a government that can offer some sort of support to get these projects just to that point where you can start to build, whether it's mm. help with the financing, whether it's help with pushing red tape out the way, whether it's help with just giving the investors the confidence that these things aren't going to, no one's going to spend a billion and then it's going to stop. That's the worst thing. Mm. So we need to try and do yeah. that. And, and perhaps in the same way that government's been supporting investment in renewables. Um, I might go on to some questions about the experience in the UAE. And I know that we've just had a question in from someone who's watching, but I'll, I'll just first get you to, for people who aren't aware of what's going on in the UAE, just describe the reactor program there and the success um, that's been had and how in, I, was it a decade? As the UAE was able to go from a country with no nuclear energy, much like Australia, to yep. being, well, in the future, powered 25% or so by nuclear energy. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So uh, I don't know the exact dates, but if it's, it's around 2010, 2008 to 2010 time, mm -hmm. there was, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> there was a, uh, a political decision here to pursue a nuclear program and, and start to um, discuss options with potential vendors going through that process of down selecting um, a short list of vendors signing a prime contract with their preferred vendor which turned out to be uh, the Korean company Kepco um, then I think the actual program program started in in real terms around <clears throat> 2012, 2013. Mm. I can't remember when they broke ground, but I, I came here in 2014 and they were just pouring concrete into the ground on unit one at that point. So when was that 2014? So we're about 10 years coming up now. It's not even 10 years. Um, mm. The four units have been built for a while. Um, I can't remember when unit one started, just when I, it was during COVID. Uh, lockdown. So, um, 2020, I think, or 21. Mm. Um, and the plan is to start a unit every year. So, you know, from there on, unit two, unit three. Unit three is in operation now, and it started this year. And next year, they'll they'll start unit four. Um, and the the motivation of that was uh, a few different aspects, I guess. So you know, and I'm not speaking for the government here, this is just my perception of, 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 of what they've done. So there's a recognition here that they needed to move away from oil and gas as their primary mm. power source for obvious reasons. Um, not least that they want to do the right thing and be a clean energy uh, country. So there's that motivation. And I think there's also, you know, there are some more subtle benefits to having a nuclear program, particularly in a, in a, in a developing nation like this, where people want high value jobs um, and to create a, an industry like the nuclear industry in a, in a relatively small country mm -hmm. presents huge opportunities uh, for young people to go into um, 
you know, into career paths that are rewarding uh, and challenging and, and offer good futures. In regards to that question, we've got um, a question from Jasmine, and I'm just trying to get on the screen now. How has the UAE been able to entice young Emirates to careers in nuclear energy? And are there plans to expand the nuclear energy uh, power capacity beyond the four reactors which have been constructed? Yeah, uh, so I'll tell you what I know. So the UAE had a active engagement program with their universities here and, and there was a definite move to try and um, create a positive uh, feeling and an and, and appetite for going into working in, in, in the nuclear industry here. Um, they've got a nuclear engineering uh, undergraduate program and degrees now, I think uh, they might even have more than one. So that there are there are clear career paths and choices now available to people who go through the education system here, um, mm. and you know there's there's a solid uh, cohort of of uh, UAE nationals going through the program. Obviously, when you start an industry from scratch here and start a plant from scratch, um, you need a fair amount of expertise being brought in from overseas uh, to get mm. the thing going. Um, but there's definitely an anticipation that over time, you know, that industry and that plant in particular will be run and operated by by uh, by the Emiratis. Hmm. Um, and I guess that links in with Stuart's question as well. And he brings up the fact that, you know, there's a similar situation in the UK where there's an ageing nuclear work force sorry can't see the whole question but it's basically yeah, about that, yeah. addressing the future skills needed so what you're saying so in collaboration with the universities and then also in i guess importing um people with skills from countries which do have nuclear experience that's the way to go for australia and do you think i might just um ex extend it a bit mm. you think you know developments like the AUKUS steel for our nuclear submarines, do you think that will assist Australia? And do you think the work that's being done there can be transferred to if Australia was to develop a civil nuclear power industry? Yeah, I think that's right. It was interesting seeing that AUKUS thing happen this year, wasn't it? So I think that's a that might be quite a key um, event in terms of, uh, you know, what you're trying to look at, Will. I remember also there was a, you know, I didn't get, get to mention it just now, but um, there was a uh, quite a substantial exchange program between the Koreans and uh, the UAE team to get people through basically using KEPCO's nuclear training programs um, to learn the plant, to learn about nuclear safety, to learn about all the different aspects that, that you need to do. And that partnership arrangement between vendor um, and, and client is absolutely essential. Um, and if, you know, if we get time to talk about some of the, the, the component parts of what a new nuclear program looks like, that capability development um, work stream is a, is a key one. And it's definitely one that <clears throat> the international nuclear organizations like WANO and the IAEA, um, who would have very 
close eyes on what you were doing, um, they'd want to see strong evidence of that being built up over time. Mm. And it's actually one of the advantages of the fact that it takes a few years to build the plant because you do have that time to develop those skills and those those capabilities. Because um, it does yeah. take it does take years, not not months. You can't train to to do this stuff overnight. Is it? It would it be accurate to say that the reactors which were built in the UAE were, um, sorry, like basically, oh, I I forgot the wording. Um, so that they were purchased from South Korea off the shelf. Sorry, so they're oh. off the shelf designs. Yeah, yeah I know. I understand South. what you're asking. Will so the the model that was used here. Uh, it, it's a quite a common model. So they basically used uh, an EPC contract. So they had a fixed price lump sum contract with a vendor to build them a plant. And within that contract, there were also other elements such as capability development, you know, all the things that you need to get the plant, not just built, but actually start it up and get it into operation. So if you want to, if you want to start that sort of a program, for example, in Australia, you need to build, you need lots of legal advice up front, uh, and, and you need to get the right sort of expertise together to understand what the parts of that contract need to ask for, um, to make sure you get everything you need. It's not the model that everyone uses. The, the EDF model in the UK is a bit different from that because they're 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 kind of building it for themselves, if you like, just to use it very plain language. Um, they don't have a vendor per se, and unless you, it, it's EDF France who own the design for the EPR. But there's lots of different models. Some of those um, those those projects that that didn't go forward in the UK were using a kind of hybrid model, which was a prime contract model, but it was broken into parts. So there wasn't one single contract to build a nuclear power plant. The horizon one I remember I was more familiar with was broken into, I think four or six ish uh, contract blocks. The one to build the power plant, one to build the turbine hall, one to build the auxiliary facilities, etc. So there are different financing and commercial models that you can use. But yes, to answer your question here, they, they, they used a prime contract model where they bought a finished plant from the Koreans. To answer a question, I think that a lot of people unfamiliar to nuclear may have, why would a country like the United Arab Emirates, which would appear to an outsider as having plentiful solar um, from the sun, why would a country like that need nuclear energy and, and also given yeah. you know the, fo the abundance of fossil fuels there you know so why why specifically do you think the uae has decided to go nuclear um you're right to recognize the the commitment they've got to to solar um they've got as much solar here as anyone um and mm. we're building it as fast as as, as anyone I can't remember exactly how many gigawatts we've currently got, but it's five or six gigawatts or something like that. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's plans to to increase that significantly. But we we mustn't lose sight of the fact that you only get direct sunlight on those panels for eight hours a day, right? And 
until people, you know, recognize that, um, we're, we're, you know, we're not going to be successful. So, you know, the pursuit of, of supporting services like battery storage and, or, you know, pumped hydro or whatever it is, that's the answer for trying to back up renewables. The, the, the limitation is clear. The limitation is the intermittency. Mm -hmm. um, and to say that you think you can achieve 100% renewable grids is, is for me, uh, a myth. Um, I just don't think it can be done. And I think here they're quite pragmatic and realistic about what can be done and can't be done. And, and I think the recognition that actually having a fair chunk of baseload power from nuclear was, was a relatively sensible idea. Um, mm. And even though it's a challenge to set it up from scratch, it's something that they should do. Um, mm. And, you know, for all the other reasons too, you know, in terms of, you know, creating high value jobs and, you know, all of those things. So mm. I think it's a sensible move. Um, they may choose to do more in the future to get to net zero. Those plans aren't fully formulated yet. Uh, and I don't want to really comment too much on um, guessing what they're going to say, because uh, well, that wouldn't be right for me to, to, to say anything on this forum. But, um, mm. but there is, there's all sorts of options that get us to net zero, I think. Um, but the, the more renewables you have, the more challenges you've got with intermittency. It's as simple as that. And the plan here would probably be to, to back up those renewables with gas. And that's fine, but lots of gas doesn't get you to net zero, does it? No. So there are, there are no publicly available plans for the UAE to build more nuclear reactors, is that correct? Currently not, but, it, um, but th there are ongoing discussions that I can't talk to you about. Um, well, well, about uh, <laughs> you know, we've got very clear plans in the uae to get to 2030 2035 quantified plans and that they're, they're they're being presented at cop 28 as an updated set of, of, of targets most of that's in the public domain it's perfectly okay mm. for me to say that um you you can read about that for yourself um beyond 2035 those that planning is still going on um and i wouldn't be surprised if it included more um, but I can't say if it would or wouldn't at this point. It's, it, that's that's for the authorities to 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 to, to tell you. Um, I had a question because we often get told in Australia that nuclear energy is the most expensive form of power generation, and as people would be aware, this week there's been a bit of a pushback um, against that claim here in Australia. But from your perspective in the UAE and working in other countries like the UK, is nuclear energy the most expensive form of power generation? Yeah, I'm always interested in that argument um, because it's normally founded on, you know, we talked earlier about the, the challenges of the, the capital cost of, of constructing plants. And I'm not an economist, but I like to look at what happens through experience rather than trying to model the answer. And what I mean by that is, and I, I posted recently on this topic, if you look at France, who have had a nuclear fleet for decades, uh, who consistently have the lowest electricity price in Europe, um, don't have any intermittency issues and are a net exporter routinely of power to the rest of Europe. And I think 
if you look at that in context, does nuclear sound expensive and difficult? I'm not so sure. Um, as I say, it's those it's those upfront costs of building the plant. Once you've got the plant built, you know you're generating 24/7, 95 plus capacity factor from most well-run plants. Maybe even a lot higher. Maybe as high as 97 percent. Um, running for 60, 70, eight, maybe 80 years um, with a few refueling outages. So I don't know. It 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 feels like it has to be a key part of the net zero transition for me. And even if it did cost a bit more, you probably still should do it. But I don't actually think you will in the long run. And the costs come down the more you build, right? So the problem is, it's this whole chicken and egg problem where no one wants to build one. So the costs are high because you're building one or two here and there. Um, if you get a fleet going and you start building dozens of these things, the, the cost comes down dramatically. And I would say from the experience of watching Baraka being built, you know, even Kepco, who had built several of these units before in their own country, they learned so much building unit one and unit two and unit three that um, the last unit took practically half the time to build as the first one. Yeah. So you imagine what that does to the cost base. No, that it's, it, it, sorry, is this, I've heard a statistic and I, I'm not sure if you, you could confirm this or not, but apparently the cost of power from nuclear in the UAE is 25% of that of the cost of gas. Is that correct? I don't have those numbers, but that doesn't sound right to me. Um, I don't have those numbers, mate. And, and any, even if I did, I probably couldn't share them with you. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't know enough about the, the costings of the wholesale or, or, or the retail pricing of electricity to reach, not really my area of expertise. But as I say, I just bring you back to the example of France. Just look at the publicly available data on, on France's power production. Mm -hmm. it's, it's all there to see, you know. And you know, you have to get there. Yeah, it takes it takes decades to get to where France are, but if you look at what they've got now, yeah. um, the evidence is there. It doesn't I, I in the long run. It doesn't look expensive, is all I can say. When, when yeah, you develop it, you get the economies of scale, um, and have that expertise. Exactly. Developed. Exactly, um, and then you know, and and they've got a massive industry. They've got no concerns over energy security. They've got no concerns over, um, you know, the intermittency or um, having to import power from overseas. Mm. They very rarely do that. They're a net exporter. Um, so there's lots of other less tangible benefits. Yeah. There's just a few more questions we'll get through quickly. Um, sure. Stuart, there's one about how you, you can't see all of this question, but how is the UAE okay. managing the waste from their nuclear reactors? And he brings up the point that Australia has the uh, capability, cap, uh, sorry, capability and land, I guess, available to do that. But What's the UAE's plan to manage specifically the spent fuel? Yeah, so spent fuel, I guess, is what we're really talking about, the sort of high level waste. Um, and this consistently gets uh, overplayed for me in, 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 in the media. Um, the routines and waste management techniques for spent fuel is, is 
is quite straightforward in a way. Um, it's, it's well understood now, it's well handled. Um, spent fuel is, is usually held in cooling ponds for a period at, at the power station site, and then it's transferred eventually into dry casks normally, um, where it's held probably on site or maybe somewhere else. Um, uh, and then I think we need to consider that there's, there's lots going on at the moment with the, the fourth generation of, of nuclear reactor designs, some of which are capable of burning that spent fuel a second time or having it reprocessed as fuel for, for, for a second time. Um, that creates a, a, a new type of fuel waste that has a much less, uh, much lower risk and, and uh, you know, uh, environmental impact in terms of half-lives and, and, and radioactivity, et cetera. So, uh, I, you know, I'm not a chemist and don't pretend to understand it fully, but um, what I would say is that it's manageable on-site and off-site dry storage facilities. We're not talking about huge volumes of material here, just to be clear, even for the life of the plant. We're talking about something you could probably put in a, in a relatively small area um, in dry casks until you can make useful, uh, you know, you can, until you can make use of it in the future. Um, a few more questions. First of one of these is about in Australia's position, if we were to develop a civil nuclear power capability, what technologies yeah. you think that we should consider? Is it the gen four, like large scale reactors, small reactors? I know from, you're from the UAE, so you don't have a, uh, a full understanding of what's going on here in Australia, but what would your um, opinion be on what technologies Australia should pursue? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I'll do my best to answer it. Um, I mean, my experience has all been with large nuclear plants, you know, gigawatt plants. Um, and I think when you look at the scale of what needs to be achieved. If you use China as an example, let's say, um, they're building lots of large nuclear because they need gigawatts and gigawatts and gigawatts of power. Um, it's my understanding that the, I'm just looking at my notes, Australia, mm. what, what's your capacity requirements? 88 gigawatts or something like that, is it? Um, I think the constructability of, of future SMR designs might mean that they become more cost effective. That's their big selling point. That's what that's what they try to tell you. And I, I don't have any reason to doubt it. You know, if you can if you can manufacture uh, reactors in factories and put them on trucks and drive them to a site and build a, uh, a building around them, that sounds like it's cheaper. Mm. Um, that's not been done yet. So we don't have any evidence that, that that's true. Um, so it's a, it's a question of how much power do you want to, uh, power capacities you want to create and how quickly. Um, at the end of the day, it will probably come down to the vendor's appetite for what they want to do. So, you know, it's all very well, a government deciding what they want, but they've got to try and get the vendors to want to do it. Um, so, you know, you've got to look at both sides of that, of that equation. Um, it, it, it would be for Australia to attract a vendor base, probably a mixture of all of the different types would be my sort of mm. outline answer really. I would suggest that 
you probably need to do something a bit like the UK's planning to do, which is uh, invite a number of different reactor designs to to entertain the idea of building in 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 that in that country. Um, there's a limited amount of resources, right, and and capabilities mm. to do this stuff, and that's another problem. You know, half the planet's building nuclear plants at the moment, uh, or planning to, and there's going to be a real constraint on resources, both human and and physical, um, to, to keep growing and growing and growing that that construction capacity. Um, but it would seem to me that the most proven and lowest risk would be to go with a vendor that could build you a, a gigawatt plant that's been built dozens of times before. That would be the lowest risk option for, for the Australian government, I would say. But the, one of the key questions, and I don't know what, what the model looks like there for you guys, but is the whole kind of private versus public debate. So who pays for it? Um, you know, does the government build the plant? Um, does, does it, is it all done privately with, with you know, private investment? Is it a combination of the two? So that might have an impact on, on what sort of vendor choice you look at as well. Hmm. Um, just a final question, and I, I, I know we're running a bit over, but That's about right. what if Australia was to, say, legalise nuclear energy, as we all wish, um, and develop a civil nuclear power, industry what would be the steps that australia would have to take even before you know constructing a reactor and i this links back to martin's question yeah. how long do you think australia could go through that process given your knowledge of how it's played out in the uae yeah i think uh, it if a decision can be made to go down that route, um, I think you could make you could get start started quite quickly. Um, there's a few key steps, I guess. For, for the best of my knowledge, is you need to engage with the international nuclear community, particularly those sort of statutory bodies like WANO, the World Association of Nuclear Operators, um, IAEA. Um, they would have an opinion on how and when and, and who could do this. Um, of course, you need to um, get some vendors lined up and there's some obvious candidates. Um, you know, you're talking about Westinghouse in America, CanDo, Canada, China, HPR, um, KEPCO, APR, um, Russia even. They've got a VVER design that they're pushing out around the world. Um, then you've got the French EPR variants. They've got two or three different designs. Um, Japan's got two, Hitachi and Toshiba, maybe others that I don't know about. And then there's all the SMRs. So there's a load of vendors you can invite. Um, you need to think about regulatory framework. Maybe the AUKUS thing has helped with that. Maybe there's something happening already. I don't know. Um, you need a legal framework that helps you to understand how what the company structures would be to, to get this thing off the ground. And then... There needs to be a licensing process. You need to push these designs, whichever are, are shortlisted, through a, a, a licensing process that allows them to be built in your country. And that really gets you to the sort of commercial construction period, really, where you need to get someone on a contract to build a plant. So they're the key steps, really. 
There's a really excellent document that Wano's produced called the uh, Roadmap to Operational Readiness, R2OR, some people call it. It's, a, it's just been updated. I saw a post from Wano on LinkedIn actually last week saying it's been updated. I think I've got a copy somewhere of the last version, but it, it's like a 200-page document, and it's like a Bible for how to set up and, and go from wanting a nuclear program to getting it um, through and into operations. So anyone who's interested in that roadmap could grab hold of, of a copy of that uh, and, and go through it. It's, it's really well written by mm. all of the industry experts that know much more about it than me. So I would maybe I, I should have a read of that. Um, I know Helen Cook also does some great work in Australia if anyone's interested. And also yeah. I've got this with me now, um, Stephen Wilson's report. He'll be happy, I think I, I shouted that out what would be required for nuclear energy to be operated in Australia from 2030, and that's available online as well. But thank you very much for joining us this evening, Stuart, and answering everyone's yeah. questions. Um, well, that concludes our Q&A, and thank you again for joining us this evening and uh, this evening our time and making the time to chat with us and to answer all of our questions. So, Thank you very much, Stuart. We'll say goodbye to you now. Um, a reminder to everyone else, if you want to listen to this episode again, you can visit our YouTube profile, Nuclear for Australia, or your podcast provider of choice. Please remember to sign and share our petition to legalise nuclear energy at nuclearforaustralia.com slash petition and head to our website at nuclearforaustralia.com to learn more. Thank you very much for your support and for watching this Q&A with Stuart Bridges.